0: UX of EdTech helps people design better ways to support learning. I'm your podcast host, Alicia Kwan, and I look forward to learning with you today.
1: So, ETS AI Labs is a division within the Educational Testing Service Organization, and we work with the research group at ETS. ETS is well known for a lot of um, deep deeply rooted expertise in a lot of uh, topics in educational measurement and assessment. And we work with the business units who are responsible for producing product and getting that to market and commercializing it. And we work together with both of those teams because what we want to do is take the research side and apply it to new and innovative product development and um, work that the organization is looking to develop or expand or even refine for those things that are already in market today. Um, We do this in a few ways and and try to carve out our space at ETS, um, specifically by saying that our mission is to help learners and individuals in their lives and support them by delivering equitable and impactful learning solutions. Um, We do this by bringing together the best of learning sciences and the most innovative technology and then emerge it to learners through engaging innovative experiences. So in a crowded ed tech industry, a couple of things that uh, we try to do to set ourselves apart are, one, again, leveraging that long history of deep educational research at ETS um, to apply key principles that are proven to drive learning outcomes in a variety of educational use cases and contexts. We pride ourselves in being obsessed with learners, um, educators, employers, job seekers, really any users who may engage with our tools or services. And what we um, do to be user-obsessed is we really seek to understand their journeys, their contexts, and their perspectives. So through this sustained commitment to our users, uh, we're hoping to really transform their educational experiences and help them achieve their goals in more meaningful ways. Um, And then the third thing we do is that we invent novel AI technologies. We're not meaning to replace humans in any capacity, but rather we're looking to enable efficiencies in how they reach their unique goals through flexibility and how they integrate learning experiences into their lives and actionable insights to support that decision-making along their education or workforce journeys.
0: Can you give me context for how old is ETS? How long has ETS been around approximately? And um, do you have any examples of, the products and services you've been working on, just to to give listeners a a bigger picture?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So ETS as an organization is 75 years old. And so it has a very traditional way of working. It has some longstanding markets that is engaged in and has a core presence in, largely in summative assessments and assessment design through, um, you know, statewide contracts um, or uh, custom services. So things like the GRE, the admissions exam to higher education, um, the test of English, the TOEFL and um, test of English for workforce toic Those are some of our flagship products that we have at ETS today. One of our um, goals in our labs organization is to look at building or expanding upon those offerings today and looking at what are some other support services or tools that we can provide that surround learners as they're moving through up to or beyond that point in their learning journey where they're taking a summative assessment. So what are some formative learning experiences that may help them get to that point where they need to take that summative assessment and be successful when they do take it um, to achieve some credential? What are some ways we can keep them on a personalized learning path beyond you know, achieving that one credential, because we know that many learners are going to continue to seek additional credentials as they move th- through their professional career. Um, so the labs has actually been around for about two years, two and a half years within ETS itself.
0: What's really interesting to me is um, the labs that you're in, that's brand new. So two years old versus a 75-year-old organization. We can we can dive into that. Um, would love to understand the con the context. But maybe really quick, actually, Narmine and Aaron, would you just want to add a little bit more about yeah, what your role is? Um, the past couple years, um, working at
2: the labs. Sure, Alicia. So I had AI and technology in the labs. I have a group of uh, engineers, scientists, uh, data scientists, and technologists that uh, go up to me, but. As Lisa will uh, talked about, the way we work in the labs is we have cross-functional teams, and these cross-functional teams are made of team members that come from Lisa's organization, Erin's organization, and my organization. So we really try to marry the product management piece of it, the product ownership piece of it, the learning science and design, as well as the technology, so that the kind of products we build really think through the learning principles and and not just brute force technology that we put in front of the learners.
3: And Alicia, I lead the learning science and design group. So that includes here in the labs, um, the learning scientists, instructional designers, we have an impact research group, and then um, our UX team, which is made up of UX designers and UX researchers. Um, I think something I'll add to what Lisa and Narmin have shared um, is is really, again, about that cross-functional teamwork. What I think um, is really special about what we do here in the labs and the way we work is um, that this cross-functional team, all these specialty roles and expertise are brought in right from the beginning to work together and in a highly collaborative environment. Um, So, for example, um, when our user researchers are interviewing particular users in a target group, engineers are sitting on the call, listening to that experience and that exchange. So they're getting firsthand opportunities to develop empathy and understand the pain points that our UX team is discovering in those interviews. Um, And so that team kind of huddles and works together in, you know, Agile Scrum as we move and advance through the product development phases. Um, But I think that's kind of a big part of our special sauce is having that user obsession be not just the role, the responsibility of the UX team, but really to pull everyone and all roles into that environment.
0: Okay, so that, that helps me give context in, in terms of how, you know, the full team works together. Um, one more quick question around this is, what caused ETS to say, let's have essentially AI labs? Let's, let's start this, you know, a couple of years ago, can you give me a little bit more uh, context around that, kind of the purpose of what your teams are doing?
1: I'll let Narmeen comment on the AI-driven uh, product strategy and priority at ETS. Um, but I'll say from the educational technology market perspective, we have seen these transformations and these changes in user expectations, market preferences for you know building years upon years. And so I think this reckoning across education at large and thinking about what are what is a typical student look like now in higher education? It's not that traditional eat you know someone who goes right out of high school that are eight, you know and they start their um, or their college career starts at age 18 and ends at 22 and they go immediately into their career with their profession. Things have changed quite a bit. And with that change in who the learners are, Where their educational contexts occur, um, we see people, you know, breaking up their degree pathway or moving across multiple institutions and, you know, becoming that transfer student and trying to carry credit to credit as they're moving through their professional experience simultaneously as well. So in education, I think there are a lot of educational companies the past few years have been looking at how do I get a better handle and a better sense of what learners are experiencing today, what their needs are, because those are changing and those are evolving. Um, And from the institution's perspectives as well, you know, they are looking to support their students in different ways than they have over the past, um, you know, maybe 10 or 20 years ago. So their needs are changing and their goals are changing as well. So, you know, creating the labs and making sure that that user obsession and um, that user design piece is just so central to our operating model and the way that we work cross functionally is meant to make sure that we are in pulse or in check with, the actual needs of learners and their context and where they want to learn how they want to learn and what they're trying to achieve because it may not be just this one test that they take at one point you know once in their life they may be looking for those um, you know many credentials or they might change their mind you know halfway through a career and realize actually there's this new career that is emerging um, this brand new field and i want to try my hand at that or think figure out how i can upskill to get into that pathway going forward so I think ETS, like many other educational organizations have been looking at that transformation and looking at um, the possibilities there to uh, support their learners and their customers beyond what their current offerings are um, and that they've had for the past 75 years. But Narmine, I'd love to hear uh, because you've been at ETS longer than Aaron and I have what the impetus was to focus on that AI-driven product strategy.
2: Yeah, great background, Lisa. And that dovetails uh, you know, really well into... The mindset that we had at ETS when we started the AI labs. So two things really came about. One, ETS, you know, is a legacy organization with a lot of you know storied successes, but we've primarily focused on high-stakes summative assessments. In order for us to better serve our users across the entire journey of their education it was critical for us to think through expanding beyond that moment in time, one-time high-stakes assessment. And to do that, we really started thinking through how might, we, um, how might we impact the user, how might we engage with them across different points in their journey. So this could be through formative assessments, through learning, it could be through skills diagnosis, through just providing educators support as they get their learners up to speed for a milestone in their learning journey. In addition, uh, we've been using AI in you know, a couple of functions like scoring, for example, or speech processing for many years, you know, 10 to 15 years. But AI has revolutionized industries at large. And now with the technology so readily available and so cheaply available in a fashion that it can be consumed by organizations that are not necessarily just the big tech organizations, That really has pushed many organizations like us to think through how can we bring that AI to create optimized products, to create efficiencies for our users and provide them deeper insights. So marrying these two events together really got us to the point where we were like, okay, we need to build new products and we need to power them with AI. Now, again, ETS being a legacy organization and, us having to support many core products that required high quality and industry strength processes, Uh, having an incubator space or an innovation lab was critical for us to be able to rapidly prototype, get things out in the market, really connect with our users in a very different fashion. And that was how the labs came about.
0: That sounds really exciting, honestly. Um, And thank you for the clarification makes sense about, learners, students, higher ed institutions are changing. Therefore, (laughs) you all have have made changes as well and are continuing along that vein of, okay, we're obsessed with the people that are using our products. Let's understand more about what their needs are in this day and age. Um, And so I want to dive into that more, thinking about recent months um, when it comes to AI. um, How have the recent months of the chat GPT popularization and open AI releases, how has all of that affected your work? Because, you know, AI is not something that is something that you're just jumping into all of a sudden, right? This is just years and years in the making, but now it's on everyone's radar. So I'm, I'm curious how that's affected your work
2: great question alicia and as you can imagine lots of buzz and excitement and just lots of chatter around the release of chat gpt like you mentioned right ai was around for a while generative ai like chat gpt you know the algorithm that chat GPT is work is based on gpt3 even that's been around for a few years the difference this time though was that they opened up the access to more than just engineers. So the engineering community had access to these algorithms for a few years, but the non-engineering community had not had a chance to play with it. And what OpenAI did really well was to build this such an easy-to-use chat-like interface that now every person, whether they, you know, were into technology or not, could try out the models and then give us a call like, hey, I saw this really cool thing, what are you guys doing about it? So three things really happened because of this release and all the excitement. One, content generation at scale. So as you can imagine for our assessments and for our learning products, as well as other uh, ways of interacting with users, we generate a lot of content. Generative AI algorithms like uh, ChatGPT, they've made this generation at scale very 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 accessible now there are some caveats around bias and accuracy but the raw generation is now you know pretty straightforward so being able to leverage the generative ai powers in order to speed up our um, content gen was a huge push. In addition, what it allowed us to do is to build more socio-culturally relevant content because now changing the content for certain audiences become, became pretty simple. We didn't have to go back to the drawing board and start from scratch when we're generating content. The other area which, was, which is interesting is um, Chat GPT, you know, allows people to quickly generate text, which means that you know students and others would quickly be able to generate essays. It really circumvents the whole writing process. So my team got a lot of calls around security. You know, how are we making sure that the essays people submit for high stakes assessments were not AI generated? And that's going to be a tricky one for you know every engineer and every company around the world because. There is no foolproof method to detect an AI-generated essay or AI-generated text. It's really about trying to um, find those patterns that could help us make our assessments a little bit more secure, but then also building assessments that did not necessarily rely on uh, information that could be readily AI-generated. And the third space, which to me is the most interesting space, is how can we personalize learning? Being able to generate all of this content um, at scale in different varieties and then really combining it with user characteristics. So what really motivates the learner? You know, We know that learners learn best when you talk about topics that are of most interest to them. So if someone's interested in a particular topic, can we then tweak the learning and tweak the content for that learner such that they can consume it more readily. So that personalized learning space is going to have a huge impact because of this readily available generative AI.
0: How do you digest all the development in AI um, for specifically your design and research teams working together, you know, in terms of processes, some of that cross-functional work? Um, Do you have thoughts for other teams around how to approach recent AI developments alongside what they're building? maybe? do's and don'ts. You know, you see, you know, I follow a lot of different ed tech companies and now there's this sudden, oh, we have this too, sort of a thing out of nowhere now that it's popularized. And so I'm, I want to, I'm trying to kind of lift the curtain. I'm curious, you know, how do people arrive there? Is it, was this the best solution for you know, the problems they had originally been working on. Um, so yeah, just curious about do's and don'ts, if you had any advice for those working in this space in trying to digest all of the recent AI developments.
2: Yeah, Erin and I, we work on this um, challenge slash problem slash solution every day. Um, because I think what, ends up happening is that the engineering or the technical community, you know, just by nature of it being a technical community, we tend to follow these um, updates, we tend to sort of stay abreast with these technologies. And many times the technologies are not ready for uh, use um, in an application with a user. So, you know, the tech community follows it what is cool about these cross functional teams that we have and i would highly recommend those to you know other companies and other teams as well is that the engineering community then uh, collaborates with the learning science and the uxr community so the uxr and erin can speak more about it they tell us what kind of problems they are seeing in the user space what are the challenges that the user have and then the technologists can be like all right i can solve that with this new ai stuff that just got released yesterday. So we try to run these brainstorms you know, as frequently as possible, at least once a month, so we can get to exactly the problem that you're surfacing here, Alicia. Yeah, and
3: Armeen, I'll add, I think um, Lisa and Armin and I all share a desire to make sure that when we're adding or including AI in a particular solution, it's really the right AI at the right time and for the right purpose. I mean, I think when you're talking about do's and don'ts, I think a don't would be trying to maybe force or add an AI capability into your product just because you have access to the AI capability. You know, we're really careful to make sure we're solving a specific learning goal or learning problem and helping our customer, our users, our learners, our teachers, whomever we're building for, um, we're helping to improve their experience and help them achieve their goals in, in this additional capability and the incorporation of that.
2: One other thing that I would like to add there, Erin, is that, um, you know, AI is powered by data. And one of the do's is to really think through what data do you really want to collect? You know, companies and technologies tend to just collect every possible data point that they can. But we, um, we challenge ourselves to really be intentional about the user footprint that we are capturing. We want to be very respectful of the data of learners and educators and institutions and only really collect the footprint that will then be used to drive value back to the user. So, you know, not be unintentional or just force um, data points that we don't need.
1: Yeah, and I would love to add on to that a little bit, too, Narmeen, because I think it becomes easier to determine what data points do we need to capture so that we can drive that value and expose that to users in a timely way when we have the right use cases that are prioritized from a product perspective as well. So are these viable opportunities for the business? And do we also understand enough about the context, the use case, the needs, the goals of the learners to explore this and solve it in a way that we can um, expose AI in in a valuable, you know, situation? Um, does it drive efficiency? Does it drive those actionable insights? Or does it drive flexibility for that personalization that we're ultimately uh, seeking to bring to the learner? If we can't do one of those three things with the AI, then we have to question, like Erin was saying, are we just trying to force this solution into this context or this feature set uh, when it's maybe unnecessary or it's not actually driving us any closer to that value proposition that we're aiming for?
3: Um, adding on to that, Lisa, I think... We are very fortunate here in the AI labs that we do have a lot of specialty roles available on these cross-functional teams. I mean, I think one of the um, pieces we talk about a lot is this idea of an interpretation layer where let's say for example, a learning scientist can work with an AI engineer and understand what signals we might be receiving or data that's incoming into our models from a user's experience or interactions with our products. And then the learning scientist and maybe an instructional designer can help decide or determine how might we um, present data back to a user that's helpful, informative, actionable, appropriate, all of those things. And then we can bring in a UX designer to kind of mock it up in a beautiful way that's engaging and helpful and delightful. And then finally, we can have a UX researcher test a bunch of different, you know, a few different options and see which of our ideas is most compelling, most useful, most beneficial to the end user.
0: That's great. That's really helpful to kind of get a picture of that. Um, I want to ask more about educational context and use cases. Do you have any examples that you can give in terms of um, use cases for AI in, in our education space?
1: I can start off with something that we've just released into the App Store. One of our prototypes um, is called Converse Workplace, and it is built for college-aged learners, primarily in India, who are looking to practice uh, their English language skills in more uh, workplace or work-focused contexts. So uh, one of the critical features or conversations we had around AI and that experience and that design um, approach. Uh, the design approach we took with that application is thinking about what are the personalization mechanisms we can bring to a learner. It could range from interest uh, to build some initial motivation to you know help them engage more with the application and the learning experiences by thinking about is this an industry or um, an authentic you know, project or context that they might actually be interested in working in eventually like a marketing firm or an IT sort of organization. Um, and then also thinking about all right, expanding beyond that, what can we do with the technology to build like a competency model over time? So as we take those user interactions through the platform or through the application itself and combine that with performance or proficiency information we're getting from the exercises or the tasks that that uh, learner is engaging in throughout the application as well, You know, can we drive more efficiency, flexibility, actionable insights for them as they move through that experience? Um, I, I think that's a great context to think about where some of our incubation and innovation focuses right now, and it's really looking at how are we providing these personalized pathways for learners, and how are we making use of those intentional you know, data footprints, as Narmine mentioned, and to Aaron's point, how are we exposing that back to the learner or the job seeker or the employer or whoever is actually using these products to think about what actionable insight is this going to help with their decision-making or, you know, helping them take the next right step forward in the application I just mentioned, for example, we have some um, speech uh, feedback that we are able to provide people on their pronunciation or uh, the way, the confidence in which they answered a question in the English language. And we're able to recommend some additional practice. If we see that maybe they're not presenting themselves in the most confident way, or their speech has a lot of filler or pause, um, you know, filler words or pauses in it as well. We're kind of guiding them towards, hey, this might be an area that you can strengthen, and here's some activities that you can choose to engage in if you're, you know, looking to upskill or sort of um, strengthen that area in your speech patterns or your speech proficiency. But Erin and Armin, I'm wondering if you have other exciting contexts that you want to talk about as well.
2: I'd love to talk about skills diagnosis, Lisa. I mean, you know, that's my, <clears throat> that's my favorite thing to do. Uh, how might we Uh, diagnose and predict skills as you're doing something else. You know, most of us think of assessments as I ask you a question and you give me a response. But when you start thinking about transferable skills like problem solving and innovation and creativity, you don't necessarily want to always have a series of questions and answers. It gets cumbersome after a time. So what we're trying to do is use AI, uh, specifically natural language processing, multimodal AI, as well as recommendation engines to, um, you know, watch you do other activities. You know, you might be... Taking uh, a course, you might be earning a degree. You might be, uh, you know, playing with a friend. And what signals can we derive from those interactions that can then give us a little bit more information to start predicting and diagnosing uh, diagnosing your transferable skill set. Um, I can imagine that would be, you know, very useful to have like a skills profile on your watch or on your phone that you can then use uh, when you talk to prospective employers or to institutions.
3: I think I would take this from a different angle. And I love all the examples you shared, Lisa and Normie. And I think from the learning point of view, something we know almost all learners struggle with at some point in their lifetime is um, self-efficacy and maybe a lack of confidence in a certain area. And so for the example, if we think about um, the app that Lisa was mentioning about helping to develop your confidence in speaking English in a workplace environment, um, we're asking them to do things that they that people might feel uncomfortable to do in front of another person. It's kind of practicing and um, maybe... Practicing and trying things that they're not super confident about. And what AI enables in this environment, in this use case, is kind of a safe place, a low risk, low stakes environment to take chances, make some mistakes, and get personalized feedback so you can continue to improve. Um, I see that we're doing that in almost all of our learning solutions and prototypes that we're building out. And I think really aiming to help build a learner's confidence in a private way where they can. Um, feel safe to make some mistakes and get that feedback, and then do better is is a real gift that I think our teams are providing to our potential customers.
0: This might be a um, somewhat of a redundant question um, at this point, but I'm wondering to kind of summarize some of the things you've said. How do you design with explainable AI in mind? Um, if you were to give a few more thoughts around that, um, especially for teams that are listening. Curious your thoughts there.
1: I mean, again, I think I would start by saying it comes down to making sure we are clear as a team about what insights we are trying to provide that learner, that educator, that employer, and why. And once we know that that that's what we're aiming for, we can kind of work backwards and get into the construct definition. And then how do we identify or um, expose those signals that are going to inform those insights going forward? Um, But Erin, I think your team has some design principles that they bring In to make sure that we have some explain, explainable AI built in for the end user, right?
3: Yeah, in a couple of different ways. Um, I think it kind of does go back, Alicia, to something you asked about earlier, which is when I answered. My thoughts are really about the right AI at the right time, and the trying to surface in a couple of areas why we're asking for certain data inputs. So exposing um, through. Sometimes just text, or in some way, when we're asking for an input to explain why we're asking for this. How could this? Um, how are we going to use this data if it's a more formal experience? Or um, just kind of letting them know this would be a helpful piece of information, and we'll we'll um, give you feedback on this to help you meet your goal or something in the context of a solution. Um, and then I think the. Back to that interpretation layer again, it's kind of using these certain um, learning design principles and UX design principles to say, anything we're putting in front of a learner is there to help meet a specific learning goal or learning outcome that we've determined is one of our product value propositions or overall goals for the product. Um, So if we are collecting data or if we're surfacing something back to you, it's with a specific intention in mind. And we really try to avoid any additional material. So any additional or redundant verbiage or um, things that can overcomplicate an interface or a learner's experience, we've really tried very hard to remove those things. And that's why our user testing is so important to us to make sure we're doing the right thing for them.
0: I wanna jump into LX. Um, We've said it now multiple times, this cross-functional approach that you all have in your product development. Um, what role does LX play, and can you explain how y'all work together?
3: I can start with this one. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, the way our learning scientists and our UX group work, um, again, it kind of comes back to this cross-functional approach, really. But it's um, really starts with going back to the users. So the the process always begins with the users. So what is our um, General North Star, or what is, you know, what are, what are we hoping to do with this big area of blank space if we're starting a brand new project? Um, learning about user needs and learning about pain points, and then referencing the learning scientist is responsible for bringing in and referencing all historical foundational learning science data and principles to bring to the team. And so that is bringing in both the learning science research and then applying that um, with the help of. Instructional designers or um, other experts in the group, and so I think um, what I love about what we're doing in the labs is learning science is not an afterthought, learning science is part of the foundation of any of our solutions, Um, and then bringing in these other um, roles into that conversation so then we're applying. Those learning science principles into a design, for example, and then we're iteratively testing on that. So I think that's how um, I think that's how we're applying learning science and learning experience design in a way that um, hopefully should meet these user goals because we're so so um, interested. I guess is the word I should say in really defining those pain points and constantly checking in with that user base to see, are we going in the right direction? Does this actually help? And our impact research scientists on the teams are there to be monitoring that with each release. So are we actually achieving our learning goals? Um, Are we moving towards equity and efficacy with each release? And how then can we do better if we're not reaching our goals? Um, So in that iterative process, I think all these players are deeply involved in that. Yeah, that was great, Erin. I'd also add on
1: that, you know, we've said this a few times in the call already, but I'll say it again, having these cross-functional teams where we do have like AI engineering sitting with and next to the learning scientists or the designers on the team to help drive the ideation and brainstorming in the solution Um concept going forward is absolutely critical to our success because while we have all these specialty roles that Erin had previously mentioned, like instructional design and learning science and user research and user design, um, we know that AI technology is advancing and evolving rapidly. And so we really need that tech perspective to really, you know, be there and say, okay, well, this, you know, understand, first of all, the user needs that we're trying to solve, make sure that everyone's on the same page on the team and help drive the solution ideation around, okay, this is the goal you're trying to meet. Um, this is the outcome we're aiming for. This is the impact we are trying to have as a learner at the end of the day this is a way we could get there more efficiently, or we might want to explore this new technology that is you know, emerging or that we have um, a trial to uh, as it's being introduced to pre-market availability and really think about, is that going to help us achieve learners goals or help learners achieve their goals? Like Aaron was saying, in a more impactful way, a more efficient way, and we just need all those perspectives to be brought to the table simultaneously. So having those cross-functional brainstorming workshops uh, when we go into feature set definition, or even prioritizing what is the feature set we want to release first and why, it's just really critical to bring all those deep functional area um, expertise and perspectives together and make sure that we have a coherent understanding on the team.
0: I love this. You're you're all you're kind of laying out a blueprint. A little bit or a playbook in a sense for how to pull all those different things together and you know the common diagram of um there's the three circles of uh you've got your product lead your design lead and your engineering lead and the crossover there and really there should be um another bubble that's added there right this overlap of your your learning scientist slash and or instructional designer um that's a key piece and i think something you said earlier aaron about you know our learning scientists, for example, they're not an afterthought, you know, and I think that that's really important that that's, it's a, a key piece to the, to the stool, right? The fourth leg or the, the key piece to the diagram and having that as early as possible in that perspective as early as possible is just, um, essential, um, to, to the success that you all have, um, helpful. That's really helpful. Do you have any advice for teams that are looking to incorporate um, some type of LX perspective into their work more. I know that different places call roles, different things. So that's a, a topic for another episode probably. Um, but just in general that LX representation, um, I think from conversations that I've had, uh, teams want to incorporate that more and figuring out structure and even given, okay, legacy, this legacy company that you're a part of, right? 75 years, um, as a as a tech company, um, today and in, in the processes that are maybe used today and the approach that's used today is a lot different than you know decades and decades ago. So I, I guess my big question here is if you have advice in general for how, for how to incorporate Alex, but also uh, especially maybe for teams that are part of legacy organizations, and maybe there's there's some slowness to that. Um, I would imagine that you kind of have to work through. Um, we'd love to hear you speak to that.
2: I mean, from a technologist's view and, you know, what I have seen in in the labs, I in the industry, I find that bringing that learning experience is actually harder for a startup than it is for, someone who is more well-established. I think the, the more startup culture, the mindset is, how do I release a feature to my user as soon as possible? And often what I have noticed is the circumvention of learning science. You know, just to give you an example, uh, using NLP, we invent a lot of speech features. So, you know, going beyond speech recognition to how fluent you are, how accurate your uh, phonemes are, and so on. And I've seen a lot of um, companies that you know use this technology would just reveal those signals back to the user. So telling a user, you know, I'm going to your mark, these are the places where your uh, phonetic pronunciation was incorrect. Now, as a user, especially if I'm a young user, like my daughter who's eight, it really means nothing to them. So here's where the power of learning science comes in, right? How the learning science uh, a person from Aaron's team works with my engineer, parses all of those signals and really figures out what do we do with each and every sig- signal in this particular case, what they might do is to target a particular piece of the sentence and then all the learner sees is, hey, how about we practice these four words one more time? Can you say this slowly? Maybe, you know, form your tongue or your mouth or, you know, use this particular intonation to say these words. So the user does not need to know where the phonemes or where the phonetic pronunciation was wrong. They just need to know how to get better. And that's the power of learning science to me.
1: I completely agree, Armeen. I see that uh, sacrifice or that, you know, deprioritization of that learning science role. And in some cases, organizations like startups may not be able to afford to have all these different specialty roles that we benefit from at ETS right now. Um, And so in those cases, sort of my advice would be to set those really clear um, objectives or, you know, product efficacy stories and narrative that you can build iteratively over time. In our innovation incubation space, incubation uh, lab, we are focused on lean design and rapid prototyping as well. But we've made it a habit on the teams uh, with learning scientists' assistance uh, to make sure that we are clear on what impact we're trying to have with the learners. What we want our product to ultimately do is it to um, uh, to increase, you know, those uh, speech rates or fluency. Is it to um, help learners you know, present themselves more confidently in a job interview when they are responding to questions and they're trying to move into a new uh, career field. And just making sure that we have that really clear, uh, clearly established the whole team is responding to and thinking about. So even if we can't benefit from that you know, day-to-day consultation with a learning scientist or instructional designer, we're at least thinking about the efficacy and the impact that our product is aiming for at the end of the day. And I find that that can be a helpful bridge um, as you're trying to just build your team up over time.
3: I have a different perspective than Narmine, though I, I appreciate that one that you shared, and I agree to some extent, but I have been a part of legacy companies that are moving into ed tech, and learning science tends to, at those older, you know, not older, legacy companies, um, tends to be its own division, or an own, its own group that's put off to the side. And those organizations... Commonly have processes in place already that include the three-legged stool that you mentioned earlier, Alicia. And learning science is not a part of that stool. And I, I always told them a four-legged chair would be more comfortable. Like, let us in, you know. <laughs> let's let's talk about it. Um, and I really, the advice I would give to learning scientists out there who want to sit at the table is to um, trust yourself in that you're there as a translator. You know, people don't need 50-page research papers. They need you to translate the critical pieces of learning science research into product speak and into something that the rest of the team can digest and understand and apply. And I think that I love, you know, I agree with you, Alicia. I think we could have a whole other conversation on titles. (laughs) Um, But I love the um, idea of LX because to me, it does mean learning has a seat at the table. There's a learning specialist who's part of the experience design and development um, and I think for, for startups, I agree, I think the investment is probably part of the concern or maybe a historical understanding that learning science sits in another part of the organization because startups usually came from legacy places to begin with. Um, so I really do think, um, what I think would be a difference maker is getting some really great learning folks who understand business, who have launched products before, who've been a part of the conversation, um, to become a part of the team and for the learning scientists fight for your seat at the table um, and prove that you understand product speak and you can contribute in a way that really helps people achieve their goals. And so the efficacy story tells itself, you know, if you can show I added this feature, we added it because it could help support this particular goal. And then the team can prove that that goal was reached. You'll get more customers because they're going to meet, you know, you're helping to meet their real needs.
0: I love that. I, I'm gonna resist going down too deep of a rabbit hole, but as a working a working definition maybe of of lx, an lX designer for you, can I tease that out just a little bit more? So maybe it's um it's a a learning scientist or slash instructional designer, or learning designer who can speak product speak as as you just said and and perhaps engages in their work um. With a UX process, in other words, very iterative, very um, steeped in kind of prototyping, getting um, actual user responses. That's a long. That's a long definition. But would you add to that? Would you? Would you change that?
3: I love all of that. Um, I think pushing a learning scientist to, um, I think, sit in on those user interviews and to develop the empathy. I think a lot of learning scientists that I work with. Um, certainly instructional designers, part of their training is asking great questions. And so I think um, hearing the answers to those questions from customers or users, and then I see the light bulbs go off all the time. Like, oh, I know what we should be worrying about. We should be dealing with self-regulation. We need reflection in here. We need goal setting. Um, and they come to the table with a bunch of ideas. So. Um, I love that definition. I, I can't even think of anything I would add to that.
0: Yeah. And that's something that I think we're really passionate about at UX of Edtech is we're trying to build a community and a part of that community is seeing the cross pollination between UX teams, UX designers, researchers, et cetera, with, um, LX and learning designers. And so just, um, just a shout out to that. And I'll put a, um, some information in the show notes about how to get involved with our community. If you're um, a part of one of those groups, would love to continue that, that kind of tug and pull of learning from one another, I think is really important. Um, this has been fascinating. Wondering how can listeners follow you and your, your work?
1: Yeah, um, we don't have a dedicated website quite yet, um, but ETS has a social presence on LinkedIn and some other forums. And our division leader, Karen McWilliams, is always you know, evangelizing and spotlighting the great work that we do in lab. So if you follow her on LinkedIn, that is kind of like a great source to see the synthesis or the aggregation of everything we're doing. Um, Narmine, I'm wondering if you want to talk about an upcoming website that will be available soon where people can access our prototypes our product impact research and um, any other blog posts about AI and product development and learning design that we are moving forward on in labs.
2: Yeah, Lisa, absolutely. Uh, we're uh, getting ready to roll out a little section of our website. It's uh, it's an expo. It's just to showcase all the products that we talked about today, as well as you know really give our uh, stakeholders and users information about how we approach the whole journey and, you know, how we uh, do impact research and, you know, what kind of value they can derive uh, by using these products.
0: Thanks for listening. If you're interested in growing in your understanding of UX in the edtech space, we offer a number of resources that could help, including articles, a community Slack, and learning events. There are two main ways to access that, our LinkedIn page and our free newsletter. Check the show notes for ways to connect. This episode's theme music is by the band Sleep Still. UX of EdTech helps people design better ways to support learning. I'm your host, Alicia Kwan, and I look forward to learning with you next time.